0: As you know, Rambam wrote 14 volumes on halacha, on, on the 613 mitzvahs, giving a, a description of each mitzvah with all of its details. He broke it into 14 volumes and gave it names, gave the volumes of the sections names, and one of the sections is called Kedusha, which means holiness or sanctity. Which laws or which mitzvahs are included in this section. The laws against about prohibited relationships, forbidden relationships, forbidden uh, sexual behavior, and forbidden foods, under Kedusha, and the laws of shechita, the slaughtering of an animal to make it kosher. Those are the three mitzvahs, or the three laws, that, are, that comprise the volume or the section called Kedusha. And it is significant that these would be called holiness or sanctity when in fact they're basically describing unholiness. Even though we could make a distinction between forbidden foods and forbidden relationships with the laws of Shechita. Shita is actually a positive thing because it means elevating the food or elevating the animal so that it is uh, kosher. But even that is minimally positive, it's mostly negative. Because until the animal is slaughtered, it's not kosher. So slaughtering the animal actually removes the unholiness or the forbiddenness of the living animal. The last law that Rambam records under the laws of of, uh, Shechita is that when an animal is shechted, when an animal is ritually slaughtered, there's a mitzvah to cover the blood. The blood that, is, that flows and uh, is on the ground, there's a mitzvah to cover it with sand. The mitzvah is called kisui hadam. And there's actually a blessing that you make. Blessed are you God who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to cover the blood with sand. Now, what's interesting about this, and the Rambam doesn't really make a, a point of it, the only animals whose blood needs to be covered after being shechted are wild animals, non-domesticated animals, and fowl, birds, but not cattle. cattle the blood of cattle doesn't, the cow, the, the sheep, yep, they don't have to be covered. What wild animal is shechted that needs to have his blood covered? The deer and that family. Or if somebody could figure out where to shecht a giraffe, <laughs> it would be kosher, but nobody can figure out where to do it. So it's birds and wild animals whose blood have to be covered. The Rebbe once explained this. The Rebbe said that the reason you need to cover the blood uh, is because, obviously, it's the lifeblood of the animal. And when you, when you see a thing go from living to non-living, this is tragic. And so you have to cover the blood as a sign of recognizing the tragedy. But when do you have to do that? When the distinction between life and death is very intense. Birds are full of life. Their energy is very high. When a bird dies, it's a big change from a lot of life to lifeless. And the same is true with the wild animal. The energy of a deer is much greater than that of a cow. So because cattle are domesticated and they're docile and they're more slow-moving, so the the distance or the, the, the contrast between the life of the animal and the death of the animal is not so dramatic and therefore doesn't require the blood being covered. But here's what Rambam says about it. One who slaughters an animal should cover the blood. As it is written in the Torah, it should be covered with sand. If the person who does the slaughtering doesn't cover the blood, and someone else sees it, sees the blood, then he becomes obligated to cover it. Because the mitzvah is independent of the slaughter. So although the one who is slaughtering has the first obligation to cover it, because he's right there. And, but the covering of the blood is a separate mitzvah from the shechting. So the person who sees the blood, even though he didn't slaughter the animal, also has a mitzvah to cover. Now the last halacha in the entire section called holiness. How does the Rambam close? The entire section called holy, Kedusha. Halacha tezayin, Rambam says, when you cover the blood, you shouldn't do it with your foot, like kick sand over it, but you should do it with your hand or with a spoon or a shovel because when you cover the blood, it should not be done in a uh, disrespectful manner, in a derogatory manner, because then the mitzvahs would become cheapened. So when you're doing a mitzvah. You don't do it in a derogatory fashion because then you will lose respect for the mitzvah. And then he concludes with this. She'ein hakoved li'atzman shel mitzvus elo shetziva bahen baruchu. The honor, the respect that you have for the mitzvah is not for the mitzvah itself but for the one who gave us the mitzvah. So how much respect should you have for a mitzvah? Not only the amount of respect that a mitzvah requires, but you should have respect for the mitzvah in consideration of who gave the mitzvah. It's God's mitzvah. So the respect would have to be great. Now, he says what seems to be completely irrelevant, although interesting and and inspiring, but he says, the one who gave us the mitzvah, God, whom we should respect, gave us the mitzvah, Vihitzilonu melemashesh b'cheshech. And by giving us the mitzvah, he saved us from groping in the dark, from being lost in the darkness. Ve'orach <inaudible> isonu. He also put us on the right path. He prepared for us the right path with a candle. The mitzvah is like a candle that guides us to straighten out what has been distorted. Or in his words, liyasher hamaakashin. <inaudible> Those things that had gotten crooked, the mitzvah helps us straighten it out. Ve'eid, and He gave us a light, laheves nesivves hayesha, to illuminate the path of righteousness. And then He brings a quote from Tehillim, as it says, Neir Laglid varecha, your words are a candle for my feet, ve'er l'nasivosi, and a light for my path. What does this have to do with covering the blood necessarily? What does it have to do with Kedusha, with holiness? It's a, it's a little pep talk there, but why all of a sudden? There's an ongoing debate that maybe should never have happened, but it, but it, it exists. The debate is, how are we supposed to view the mitzvahs? What do they mean to us? There's an opinion that says, That we should look at the mitzvah as a self-help, self-actualization. The mitzvah is the method by which a human being becomes a real mensch. That's what it is. It's a discipline. It's a program that makes you a better person or that helps you be a better person. To support that claim, they quote the Gemara. The Gemara says in one place, the mitzvahs were given to us for the sole purpose of purifying the creation. Tsaref means um, the, the process by which you get the the dross out of the gold. What What is that called? Uh, to refine the gold by burning away the, the non-gold. So the Gemara says the mitzvahs were given in order to to refine the human beings. But there's another statement describing the mitzvahs and that is God wanted to give us merit That's why he gave us all of these commandments. So what is the purpose of the mitzvah? It is to give us merit. There's a third quote, a third description of what a mitzvah is, and that is, ne'er mitzvah, theira." Er, that the mitzvah is a candle and the taira is light. The meaning behind these three quotes, the first quote describes the lowest function of a mitzvah. The mitzvah was given, letzaref, to refine the creatures. Literally, letzaref has habriyes, the creatures. It doesn't even say human beings. That means that the purpose of a mitzvah is to separate the person from the unholiness that exists in the world. That's refinement means removing the bad stuff. And who needs that kind of help? Creatures. Which is the lowest description of a human being, is to say he's a creature among creatures. And that he has nothing else in his favor. The only positive thing you can say about him is that God created him. He's a creation. That kind of a person is obviously living on a very low level and is vulnerable to the most unholy influences. So the mitzvah is there to separate him or the goodness in him from the unholy stuff even in him. So that's the refining process. That is one of the effects that a mitzvah has, but it's it's the lowest effect. It's the minimal effect. At least don't be an animal. Where do we see this? In which mitzvahs is this most Evident in the uh, physical relationships and and in food. Because these are the two areas in which a human being can really become an animal. Or should I say, is born an animal. Because if we don't do something about it, a child by nature is indulgent and is attracted to all sorts of ugliness. So if we don't do something to separate the child from that ugliness, he's going to be an animal. As we call it, raising children. Because they exist on a very low frequency, you have to raise them up a little bit to something higher and better. So that explains the first quote, where the process is refinement, getting rid of evil, and the description of the person needing it is briyeis, which means just barely worthy. The second quote says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Es Yisrael, God wanted to give the people merit, and therefore he gave them mitzvahs. How are the people described? HaKadosh Baruch Hu not the briyeis. Here we're talking about a person who has a little more going for him, other than the fact that God created him, or in addition to the fact that God created him. We're calling him Israel. We're calling him Yisrael, which is not only a decent title. Yaakov is also a decent title, but Yisrael is even better. And that's why Yaakov's name was changed when he was elevated to a higher level after he had won the battle against the angel. He was no longer called Yaakov. He's now called Yisrael. So, Yisrael is really a title of greatness, an achievement. You wrestled with an angel and you won. That's represented by the name Yisrael. And what does the Yisrael need? He doesn't need refinement. He doesn't need to be separated from the ugliness in the world. He needs to be given merit. The word lezakais in Hebrew. Literally, it means credit, worthiness, deservedness, but it also comes from the word pure, zakah. It's not a refining process, it's a purification process. So this person also needs improvement, but the improvement is not the removal of garbage, of junk, it's purifying even the good stuff. It's like I don't know, water or oil can be a little uh, cloudy or it can be pure, completely transparent. This also, of course, is the result of these kinds of commandments of uh, prohibited relationships, prohibited foods, and the shchita of the animal. The third quote describing mitzvahs, that's already of a completely different nature. The real character of a mitzvah is not that it separates you from ugliness. It's not a surgical procedure. And it's not that it purifies what needs purification. It's not a, a healing process. The truth of a mitzvah is that it is a candle. Like the Torah is, is light, the mitzvah is a candle. And what does that mean? It means the light of godliness or the light of holiness is uncovered or released by the mitzvah. So the mitzvah is not for the purpose of rectifying or improving that which needs to be fixed. It is for the purpose of bringing godliness into the world, even if the world is perfectly healthy. But it's not godly. So even in a perfect ideal world, we would need a mitzvah. Which, of course, explains why will we be doing mitzvahs after Moshiach comes. There will be no evil. All unholiness will be removed from the earth. Death itself will be removed from the earth. Why will we need to do mitzvahs? So if, according to those who believe this, if the only purpose of a mitzvah is to refine the creatures, well, then after Moshiach we won't need to do mitzvahs anymore. They are. Mitzvahs are eternal. So they will be performed even after Mashiach comes. Well, but why? If their only purpose is to, to refine, what do you do when you're refined? Well, you can say, yeah, the refinement can go on forever, but that's not what it says about a perfect world. In a perfect world, there is no evil to be removed. So obviously, since mitzvahs will, of course, be performed and practiced after Mashiach. And not only will they be practiced, but those are the real mitzvahs. What we're doing now is just practice. Interesting that Rambam calls these mitzvahs kedusha, holiness. When in fact, it seems to be the removal of unholiness. So we find in the word kedusha two meanings. In fact, holy. What does holy mean? What does sacred mean? Sacred has two meanings. There's a negative and a positive. Sacred means removed from the ordinary, right? Set aside. So there are two sides and sacred describes that which is removed from this side and reserved for that side. So Kedusha actually means removed, How do you make a synagogue holy? How do you make a shul holy? You put up a mechitza. When you separate the men from the women, that produces holiness. Why? Because it's separation. Holiness means separated. What is a holy person? A holy person is a person who feels distanced or indifferent to worldly things, to uh, mundane things. That's a holy person. He's not interested in possessions. He's not interested in wealth. He's not interested in earthy pleasures. So he's holy. It doesn't tell you what he is. It's really telling you what he's not. So the word sacred can also be understood in that way. Sacred means not ordinary. Not cheap. But then what is it? Well, that's a different subject. So the word kedusha can actually mean separated from the non-holy. But it also has positive meaning because we describe God as holy. We use the word kadusha to describe God. We can't say God is God because he is not interested in money. <laughs> the fact is he is interested in money. But for a completely different reason. So kedusha also has to have a positive meaning. Now, the question is philosophically, can you separate the two? Can you have holiness without being removed? And can you be removed from unholiness without actually acquiring positive kedusha, positive holiness? So Rambam wants to say that all of these laws, which seem to be merely an avoidance of evil, is a mistake. That perception is a mistake. That even when the Torah tells you to avoid evil, it's not only an avoidance, it is a part of the process of making holy, of making the world holy. And That may be why Rambam says, be careful with the mitzvah, not just for the mitzvah, for the giver of the mitzvah. Once you introduce the giver of the mitzvah, then the mitzvah can't be only a negative. If it's not God who wants the mitzvah, if it's just you need to be protected from the evil, Okay, then it's just the mitzvah. But once you say, this is not just a mitzvah, this is God's issue. Well, then it can't just be an avoidance of evil. Because God doesn't have to avoid evil. So the mitzvah can't be like in the first quote, Litzarif es habries, because then what's God's interest? Then it's not God's mitzvah. Because he doesn't need it. If the mitzvah is only there because you need it, Well, then it's your mitzvah, not God's mitzvah. Although it's very nice of God to be worried about our problems, to be considerate of our lowliness and our vulgar nature and try to help us with it. It's very nice of him. But you can't call it his mitzvah. To make it all very clear, the Rambam says like this. Without quoting all the quotes, the Rambam says this. Follow this. When he says it's God's mitzvah, he says... What is God's mitzvah? It saves us from groping in the dark. Who needs to be saved from groping in the dark? Somebody whose only virtue is that he's a creation. And he's stuck with the unholiness in himself and in the world, and he needs to be separated from it. He's in the dark. And he doesn't know that he's in the dark So he needs to be told, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this you should avoid and this you should not. So the first step in the mitzvah that is God's mitzvah, the first step is that it saves us from living in the dark. The second thing is it guides us to straighten out what's crooked. Crooked is not necessarily evil. Even good things can be crooked. Even a good path leading from, you know, leading to a good place, it can be a crooked path. To smooth that out and to straighten out what is crooked, that's the second function of the mitzvah. Which verse describes that function of the mitzvah? Baruch Hu You're already not in the dark. You're already called Yisrael. You already wrestled with the angel and you won. But wrestling is crooked. It's not uncomplicated. It's not smooth. So even that needs to be refined. Not refined. Purified. Lezakis. That Even that needs to be purified. Even a good road needs to be straightened. smoothened, Smoothed out. And then it brings the quote. Why does he have to bring a quote? Because the quote brings the third and truest description of the mitzvah. What is the quote? Ner l'ragli d'varecha Your words are a candle for my feet, the sivosi, and a light for my path. That's referring to the third quote, ner mitzvah So he mentions in this quote, he brings the other quote, also it says ner, candle for my feet, and light from my path. Why doesn't he bring the other quote? Ner mitzvah Because in that quote, ner mitzvah it's talking about the mitzvah and the Torah. He's saying that the, that the mitzvah is a candle, but the light is the Torah. Here he's not talking about the virtues of Torah. He's talking about the virtues of the mitzvah. So he found a quote where the mitzvah is called both candle and light. Where the mitzvah provides both candle and light what is the difference between a candle and a light a candle is a single wick a light is a a bonfire many wicks the difference is not only in quantity but also in quality a candle can't burn very long but a fire can be kept going forever if you add more more fuel more wicks fire can burn forever so that's talking about the mitzvah the way it is before Mashiach comes then it's like a candle, and then the mitzvah after Mashiach comes, it'll burn forever and go on forever. Why does this particular instruction come in the halacha about covering the blood? It's true, it really is the conclusion of the entire section on Kedusha, but the fact is, it worked out in such a way that the last halacha in the laws of Kedusha is the one about covering the blood. So there must be some connection, particularly since Rambam doesn't break it into different paragraphs. It's in the same paragraph. He says, when you cover the blood, you don't do it with your foot, you do it with your hand. Why? And he goes into this whole thing. So obviously they're connected. The covering of the blood has another unique amendment. The obligation to cover the blood is only if it's an animal that is being slaughtered for personal use the animal that is slaughtered for a sacrifice in the Beis Hamikdash, the blood was not covered. Yeah, we don't find anywhere that the blood was covered. Now, of course, most of them were cattle, most of the sacrifices, but there were also sacrifices of birds. So you would think that those birds that were sacrificed, they would have to have their blood covered, but we don't find any place in Torah that a sacrificial bird needed to have its blood covered. And for this, you have to look into Hasidus, to find the explanation. Which again indicates that Rambam was familiar with with Hasidic concepts. Blood represents the warmth or the heat of the body. And that's why enthusiasm is identified with the blood. Hot blooded. Why hot blooded? Maybe hot skin. (laughs) What's the hot blood? Is because, in fact, the blood is the carrier of heat or of warmth or of this thing called plasma, which is life. In fact, Hasida says, We make a bracha, lases, That God is the healer of all flesh and does wonders. What are the wonders that that blessing is referring to? The miracle of a soul making peace with a body. That the soul and the body can be Compatible is a miracle because they're so different that they should not be able to get along at all, and certainly not merge so thoroughly that you can't tell where one begins and the other ends. And that's called health because if you know where one begins and the other ends, you're probably dead (laughs) or you're getting there. So, health means the body and the soul have merged so seamlessly that the body seems to be as alive as the soul. Although, of course, that's not possible. So Hasidus says, how in fact does the soul make contact with the body? Okay, we say it's a miracle, but it happens in the physical world. How does it happen? Where does the soul contact the body? Obviously, when you're bringing together two things, one is high and one is low, where is the point of contact? the highest aspect of the low and the lowest aspect of the high, uh, they got a, a little something in common and they can make some kind of a connection. What is the highest part of the body? According to Hasidus, the highest part of the body is the blood because it has warmth. But the warmth of the blood is already too physical for the soul. Wherever there is warmth, there's a, a vapor. So. It's the vapor of the heat of the blood that the soul connects to. Because the soul is basically a living creature, and life has something in common with warmth. Although they're not the same. So the warmth of the body, and particularly the non-physical, the metaphysical part of the warmth, the effect that it has on the air around it, that's refined enough for the soul to make some contact with. It. So when the Torah says, uh, don't drink the blood because the blood is the, is the life or the soul of the animal, it means not that blood is, 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 a, is a soul, but that the soul connects to the, to, to the body through the warmth of the blood. Now, the warmth of a physical body can either be positive or negative. By itself, by human nature, the warmth of a physical body is wicked. It's arrogant, it's selfish. I mean, the whole enthusiasm of a living organism is unholy. You look at the animal kingdom, it's an ugly place. But it's natural. So it's not a sin for animals to hunt each other, but it's certainly not pretty. It's a nasty life. And that's the warmth and the enthusiasm of the animal world is that eat or be eaten, or both. <laughs> You're in the food chain. You eat, and then you get eaten. So that warmth is, is not acceptable for a, for a human being, or certainly not for somebody who wants to be holy. So part of the purpose of shchita, how do you make an animal kosher? Let out the blood cool off the animal enthusiasm. So you have to drain it, salt it, and soak it, and get every bit of blood out, because otherwise what you're absorbing is the enthusiasm that is animalistic. On the other hand, in the Besamigdash, when an animal is made into a sacrifice and is offered up on the altar oh, that enthusiasm, that's good. That's as it should be. That's using the warmth of the body in a holy fashion. An animal that is not completely healthy can't be used for a sacrifice. So it has to have good, healthy blood in order to be a sacrifice. So that's not preventing it from becoming holy. That's allowing it to become holy. So there, the blood is part of its holy potential. So when an animal is slaughtered, on the altar, as a sacrifice, don't cover that blood. That's good. That's inspiring. That's holy. But when an animal is slaughtered for your own personal use, outside of the Beis Hamikdash, that blood doesn't have that positive quality. It's just the blood of an animal, which means the enthusiasm of an animal. That kind of enthusiasm we have to cover. What is the point of covering it with earth? If you don't want to see it, then what's the difference what you cover it with? And yet the Torah says specifically, and the Bracha actually specifies that the mitzvah is al kisi dam be'offer, offer, covering the blood with sand. And what's wrong with covering it with a, with a, with a board, with, with a stone? With so again, we have to look to Hasidus for the explanation. Offer implies humility. V'nafshi ka'ofar La Humility. How do we combat the enthusiasm that is unholy? Now for this, this gets into a whole, before Hasidus, or without Hasidus, how did people who, who back in the olden days, who wanted to uh, be holy, how did they handle this animal enthusiasm? They resisted it, they fought this animal blood, this animal warmth, animal enthusiasm by denying it, by condemning it, by refusing. They fasted a lot, they didn't eat anything at all. They barely engaged in physical relationships. They didn't eat meat. So the three mitzvahs that are described here, forbidden relationships, forbidden foods, well, if you really want to stay away, so don't have any relations and don't eat any food, <laughs> then, then you're safe. That was the ascetic, the ascetic philosophy of not participating in the world. Why? Because it's all animal enthusiasm. Hasidus came along and said, if that's what God wanted, then you would have stayed in heaven. obviously, god created us into this world and gave us the torah in this world and not to the angels it's because god wants us to be part of of the world and make something great out of it denial self-denial being uh, a parush this is not the way to make the world better and this is not how you fight the animal enthusiasm in fact there's actually a negative side. When you try to avoid animal enthusiasm through avoidance, it sometimes backfires. The person who tries to not eat at all will end up being a glutton because you get a reaction. The person who wants to have no relationships at all ends up being a pervert. (laughs) It doesn't lead to holiness it leads to to an uglier kind of unholiness when it doesn't work. And in the few cases where it does work, well, then you could have stayed in heaven. Then who needs you here? So Hasidus makes this uh, what seems to be a a radical statement for, uh, for a religious philosophy. Hasidus says, we were not created to avoid sin. We were not created, we were not put into this world to avoid sin. And that really is the Jewish philosophy. We're not here not to sin. We weren't sinning before. (laughs) We weren't sinning at all in heaven. So we were created not to sin? We don't sin. We don't need to be created for that. So God takes a soul that is never going to sin, And sends it down into this world and says, don't sin. And that's it? Finish it, you can stay in heaven. So then people say, oh, okay, so why shouldn't we sin? What is the importance of avoiding sin? It's because the real purpose for which you were created was to do mitzvahs, to do holy things. And if you sin, it'll interfere. It'll prevent you from doing the mitzvah. So not sinning enables you to do what you were really created to do. And that is to do the positive mitzvahs. That's not kosher. That's like saying that of the 613 mitzvahs, there are 365 prohibitions. They're not the real thing. They're just the preventative to enable you to do the real mitzvahs, which are the 248 positive mitzvahs. Uh, that, that's not kosher. A mitzvah is a mitzvah. So Rambam says, we've gotten through talking about avoiding the ugliest things in life. And you think that's not a real mitzvah? When you cover the blood, don't do it with your foot. This is a mitzvah we're talking about. And what is a mitzvah? There's no distinction between the negative and the positive mitzvahs. They are all about God's needs. Now, it's true that they keep us from getting lost in the dark, but that's just the minimal level. It also helps us straighten out what is crooked, which is also good, but that's not what the mitzvah is, including the negative mitzvah. So why should we not eat pork? And why should we not commit incest or adultery? Why? Not only to separate us from what is unholy. Not eating pork reveals godliness into the world. The third level of what mitzvahs are all about. Not committing incest reveals godliness into the world. It's not just staying away from, from something bad. There's a positive side even to the negative mitzvah. How then do we deal with the ugliness, the blood that is animalistic, if, this, if, if the proper response is not avoidance, then how do we do it? So the laws of shchita basically say, here you have an unholy, unkosher animal. If you eat from it now, you are sinning even if you're not Jewish. Because even non-Jews are not allowed to eat a living animal. It's forbidden. So in order to make it permissible, you have to slaughter it. If you're Jewish, you have to slaughter it a certain way. All the laws of Shechita. But you have to slaughter it. So slaughtering the animal takes it from being negative to becoming positive. Which again is an indication that even in the negative Avoiding what is forbidden, there is a positive effect. Not that this avoids evil, and then when you do a mitzvah, then you get a positive effect. By not doing the sin, you get a positive effect. And here's one more point. Why would Rambam even think, or he's probably quoting from the Gemara, why would the Gemara think to say, don't do it with your foot? Is there any other mitzvah that the, that the Torah has to say? Oh, by the way, don't do this mitzvah with your foot. <laughs> Who does mitzvahs with a foot? It's because the mitzvah is to cover the, the blood with sand. In other words, it's a, it's a humble mitzvah. It's, it's dirt. Dirt you can kick with your foot. No? Or is it holy dirt? It's dirt. It's sand. Sand you. Uh, generally make contact with sand, with your feet, not with your hands. So there's an issue here. If you're dealing with, with a simple, ordinary, insignificant substance, what's wrong with doing it with your foot? So again, this is what Zambam is saying. Even when we deal with the ugliness of the world, we have respect. Because how do we deal with the ugliness? Through a mitzvah. What does it mean dealing with ugliness? Observing the commandment that applies to this ugliness. Either do it, don't do it. So there's the tendency, the natural tendency, to say, look, I'm I'm dealing with dirt. You treat it like dirt. So the Rambam says, no. You're dealing with dirt, but you're doing a mitzvah. Don't don't forget what... So even in the way you reject the ugliness of the world, you do it with respect. I'm not sure it's a good example or a good analogy. When Egyptians are drowning in the sea, have a little respect. Why? They're so bad that they deserve to be drowned. That's true. What, What does it mean it's sad? Have a little respect. These are human beings. I'm not sure it's saying have a little compassion. What, what compassion? They're, they're bad guys. they got to go. Mm-hmm. what you're saying. It's don't a shame, arrogant. But it's a shame that they're bad guys and that this has to be done. Right. Why? Because a human being shouldn't be that way. So it's the dignity or the respect for the human being that even when you have to reject it, even when you have to destroy it, don't do it with your foot. Have respect. One more thing. We had a teacher once. A very, very, uh, a real chassid. He was was sitting with us at lunch and he was watching this guy peel an orange. Peeling an orange. He walks over to him and he says to him, even the rejection of klippa, you have to have respect. Klippa is basically the description of all unholiness. In Kabbalah, all unholiness is called klippa. The shell, the husk. Because unholiness surrounds the holy and hides it. Like the, it's also the orange kind of shell. Right. Now, literally, I mean, the analogy is that just as a, the shell or the peel of a fruit hides the fruit, unholiness hides... So that's why unholiness is called klipa. So here we're talking about literally the klipa of the, of the orange. So he said to him, the way you peel an orange shows what kind of a mensch you are. Or lack of. Even when you're dealing with klipa. You have to have respect. It could be respect for the ugliness. And I was like. You have to respect your enemy. Are they going to. You underestimate your enemy's evil. You're going you're gonna to suffer. Respect your, the enemy. Respect the klipa. There always has to be that. Because. Whether God says do it. Or God says, don't do it. It's a godly issue. You have to have respect. So in the Torah, for example, when children make fun of, they tell stories, and they make fun of Pharaoh. "Eh, Pharaoh was a bad man. He He had boils and frogs were coming out of his nose. Mm -hmm. If Torah talks about Pharaoh, then no matter how bad he was, have a little respect. You are not quoted in the Torah. Pharaoh is. <laughs> Nothing you ever said was worth recording for eternity, but Pharaoh is quoted in the Torah. Have a little respect. Oh, Haman. Ah, Haman is the is the uh, the exception because Haman's whole thing was arrogance, a mullik, and arrogance you have to ridicule. No, you're not supposed to, but that's, a, but that's a different thing. So Amalek is the exception. And Amalek is not quoted in the Torah. He came, he made a battle. He's not, never quoted. So even the bad guys in Torah are part of Torah. It's an amazing thing. You're not allowed to study Torah without first making the blessing. What if the only thing you're going to study that day is the quote of Pharaoh? You have to make a bracha. You can't quote Pharaoh without making a bracha. Have a little respect. Or Asav. In Cheder, you know, children are taught to, to make fun of Asav. You lose respect for Torah. Like the Rambam says if you do this mitzvah with your foot, you're losing respect for mitzvahs, not for the blood, for the mitzvahs, which is God's mitzvah. So we have to be careful and respectful even in how we reject the evil. Do it with humility. It's like spanking a child. This hurts me more than it hurts you, but I gotta do it. <laughs> I hate to do this to you, but it's a mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. So the the the, the balshemtiv would cry before he would slaughter a chicken. It's like saying, you know, I really am sorry, I, I, you know, but people are hungry. What can I do?